0: library Loan The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood
1: Hello everyone and welcome back to Interlibrary Loan, the show where a couple of friends get together, read a book that is worth discussing, and then discuss it. Um, As we have been for the past one episode, we are currently digesting Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale.
2: Today we're (laughs) discussing sections four, five, and six, waiting room, nap, and household.
1: That's right. I'm Katie. I'm Skye. And I'm Lauren. Lauren. And uh, so these flashbacks are denoted by um, tense shift within the writing. So right. um, everything that is in the current um, story of, of the novel is in written in the present tense. And then anything that's a flashback is in the past tense. Right
2: and the night sections or in this case where we read a nap section Mm -hmm. um those sections are all outside of the standard timeline um the, the sort of a plot uh and so we have uh every other section is a short section that is not chronological with the main story and then there are also within the larger sections large portions that are told in flashback so it's very it goes back and forth in time a lot but there's definitely like a main action of the novel that is more or less chronological right so that was cool we i mean this was i think the first um time reading the these three sections that that was made very clear because in the first sections it's possible that that's just sort of like a, a beginning prelude kind of thing
1: right but it clearly continues and even I think kind of intensifies in these next couple of sections that we covered today there were uh, seemed to be a, a, a lot more flashbacks mm-hmm. peppered throughout
0: and you can't quite tell whether what she's remembering is what really happened or if some of this is influenced by kind of the brainwashing that she's been going through or some of the memory repression that she's exercising and it goes in the, last, in the last couple chapter, ch- chapters, she kind of weaves the past and present together even in the same sentence. So that was really interesting to see.
1: Right. And in particular, because as I think we touched on last time a little bit, the interpreted, at least as we interpret it, the time uh, difference between the, the before times and between now in the story is not all that long. And yet, it seems that her new condition uh, of of her lifestyle has really taken hold of her and some some things seem to be fuzzier from the before times
0: right and from from what the timeline seems she talks about her her what we assume to be her daughter who we assume to be her daughter that she would have been eight years old and that she was only five Mm -hmm. whenever she was taken away from her so that's only a three-year difference yet she seems to be in a completely different society from you know what she had been in up until that point in the before times so (laughs) so
1: Um, so, uh, there's something I wanted to touch on right as we begin uh, this section. So, she is with, uh, she's coming back from a shopping trip um, with her friend of, of Glenn. And so, she had, she's talked about this before, but, like, like not feeling necessarily safe um with her uh, with her companions which we and we do learn the term handmaid in this section too with other handmaids not knowing if they're like firmly in the ideology or not um so they're they're standing looking at this wall where they you know hang these bodies right and so our narrator says um we should go back and she says, I'm always the one to say this. Sometimes I feel that if I didn't say it, she would stay here forever. But is she mourning or gloating? I still can't tell. And she makes a couple of references to, to this throughout uh, the the story. Uh, in this in this week's section and in, in in last week's too of um not really being able to necessarily gauge others re, other others' motives or um real Feelings, if they do perhaps have real feelings that are that are outside of what what they should feel.
2: Yes, a major um, a major sort of recurring problem that of uh, Fred finds herself in is she can't be sure who is a true believer and who is not, who is dangerous and who is not, who may be an ally and who is not, um, and there's very little way for her to understand, and so. Uh, For the most part, with of Glenn and others, she keeps silent and, you know, performs all of the motions expected of her. Um, But the whole time she wonders, you know, is she doing the same thing with me or does she really believe? Is she a spy? Those those sort of things.
1: Exactly. And because this, of course, is an element of um, the way things are in the Republic of Gilead, which is also what we learn this uh, society is known as the Republic of Gilead uh is that there are what are called eyes um, or basically watchers can be implanted anywhere. So there's a running current that becomes more and more prominent through throughout this particular section of uh, of like being watched and that um, control is orchestrated orchestrated through surveillance.
2: There's if, I mean and if there's one character who is, sort of definitively not an I it may be Serena Joy who we mm-hmm. learn a lot about in this section um, what did you guys think about um, how much is revealed about Serena Joy in this section
1: oh man the Serena Joy stuff because so so she basically was like a spokesperson for women staying at home right yeah she was um, the Phyllis
2: Schlafly of her day
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, and yet, uh, she has not really benefited from the society kind of taking hold of that idea and implementing it.
0: No, she seems miserable, and the um and of Fred seems to find that as a small comfort for her own misery. That Serena Joy seems to be equally, if not more, miserable in this new society based on her supposed like ideal form
2: and what do you know aiding and abetting the patriarchy does not in fact give you the rewards you might have hoped right (laughs) but in fact binds you to the same chains that everyone else is bound by um yeah i think this was like it's you know, Serena Joy is introduced to us as, I mean, she's an authority figure with almost complete power over of Fred., uh, and yet we see in this section sort of like her tragic story and how sort of miserable and humiliated she herself is by the world she has helped create. um, culminating in the last section of this story in which, like, she has to be entirely physically present while her husband is raping. Uh, of Fred.
0: She, she can test the word rape, though. Yeah. Okay, yeah.
2: yes, but she, I mean, I don't. Like, I think that's <laughs> what's going on. Um, I, I don't know. I thought that was interesting that she specifically says this isn't rape
0: um i signed up for this is what she basically said yeah
2: well i don't think that makes that
1: much of a difference but yeah so uh, yeah she follows that up where with there wasn't a lot of choice but there was some and this is what i chose but yeah i i'm i'm kind of with you sky at the uh, well i'm i'm wholly with with you on that uh n- no <laughs> we can call that rape
0: so As I was reading this, I'm just looking down at, like, some of the notes that I jotted down, and I put down, like, Serena Joy equals female Trump question mark, because she seems to be, like, one of these people who, like, lusts after this idea of something, and then once they have it, it's like they're miserable and they hate their lives, and I just kept, I'm, you know, like, we've been talking about some of the political parallels between, uh, between. You know the *The Handmaid's Tale* and and our current political situation, and that one just seemed really clear. It's like this awful caricature of a of a person who has you know really great media control, but then when they get what they want, they actually like hate it.
2: Right. The the job of being the oppressor is just as exhausting and humiliating and like soul destroying as being as the job of being the oppressed. Um, And I think that's something like that's very Orwellian in The Handmaid's Tale that, you know, even in the inner party, people are still miserable. And like it's it's still something that no one likes or wants. And yet that's the power system we have.
1: There are a couple of spots throughout this section where, um, memory and smell are linked together. Yes. And of course, being that, I I wonder if Lauren, if you had the same response that I did because I found it all very Proustian. Yes. (laughs)
2: Like a fart in church?
1: (laughs) I mean... (laughs) That's what Proust was all about, right? uh, Absolutely. Uh, That was just, you know, thousands of pages on farts in church was Marcel Proust, but, um... But no, the the this first she talks about the smell of bread and it being a nostalgic smell, and also saying that it smells of mothers. Um, but then but she it calls makes, it
0: treacherous. Yes, she says it's a treacherous smell, and she knows she must shut it out because it reminds her of her own motherhood, and it was just so powerful that that you know that smell can evoke that emotion right
1: and there's another time where it's uh, when she it's on her um, man, like mandatory bath day and the smell of like the ba- the bathing uh, I guess the soap makes her it reminds her of her daughter
0: yeah that was really powerful and I definitely was having the same thoughts very Proustian very like Proust thinking about his cookie and you know, Madeline mm-hmm. and um well, it's like basically the experiences through smells right
1: and that um it's uh, like often these smells that bring out um very deep memory are like some of the most i don't know some of the most touching to your own humanity and i think that certainly
0: was um
1: was a theme in this section
0: she talked about something, too, that was along that same lines of, like, little bits of things that brought her out of the world. She talked about dish towels being normal and how that kind of pulled her out of this new world, and it just seemed normal, and it's just these little bits of normalcy that that kind of unhinge her a little bit.
2: And even, Right. Um, you know, the... the the Farden church is like this sort of bizarre inversion of this it's you know her descriptions of things from the time before like cigarette paper like petals um and then you know serena joy begins to cry uh on the night of the ceremony and she describes it as a Farden church um which is you know which is supposed to be the tension between her lack of control and her attempt to suppress it um but then in this strange moment of synesthesia um she writes that the smell of her crying spreads over us and we pretend to ignore it um so i think like throughout this section and i'm i don't really know i don't remember it too much in our first section but i'm going to keep looking at it in the future like the sense of smell is really singled out as this powerful, powerful, you know, uh, I don't know. It it's one of the few things that can sort of unlock the past.
1: Um, and so something else that we run across is a certain. At, right at the beginning of this section is a certain phrase that she finds so she's she's talking about the room that she has um and exploring it and she notices this scratched uh phrase that is um like on the baseboard
2: in no the lite te bastardes Carborundorum.
1: I'm sure that's exactly the way it's pronounced too.
2: That's that's what my Latin teacher told me. <laughs> um, it, yeah. So this means, uh, in Latin, vaguely, don't let the bastards get you down.
1: Yeah, which is pretty fantastic. Uh, and and I like that. So so, a Fred doesn't even know what this phrase means at this point, but. This is another instance of like something giving her a very strong connection to something else. And so she she is she sees this phrase and she likes it and she imagines that it's giving her some connection to whoever it was that lived here before.
2: Right, because it's communication from the previous handmaid at the household directly to her. It wasn't intended to be read by anyone other than the next occupant. Or at least that's what a Fred sort of imagines.
1: Oh, absolutely. Because, of course, you know, writing and reading are both forbidden. So uh, were it to be discovered, it would be quite the scandal. But, yeah, it's just like secret resistance. And even though she doesn't know what it means yet, I think just like the symbolism of that like even if she doesn't like um uh what's what's the word i wanted to use um like i guess literally know what it means she figuratively knows what it means
0: right so one of the things that i thought was interesting about this too is that like she, this is kind of a recurring theme of of fred not knowing what things actually are or not really remembering correctly like Words from songs, and not quite. She's she's a little bit of an unreliable narrator in so far as that she just has an unreliable memory, and this was kind of apparent in in what was this? This was chapter ten, which was I can't remember which section this was, um, but she starts out. She's talking about singing um, "Amazing Grace," and she talks about the, the right after she she says the lines of Amazing Grace, she says, I don't know if the words are right. I grew up in a really Baptist family. <laughs> and I can tell you, she's got the words wrong. And so it's but it's interesting that she kind of like 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 grabs on to this bit about like she introduces this, this phrase was bound, but now I'm free. Mm-hmm which in
2: it's usually supposed to be was like, blind, blind but, but now I, now I see, now I see right? but now I
0: mm-hmm. see
2: yeah um and but and of course the metaphor of seeing and the eyes are everywhere so yeah. it's so uh, like it's kind blind. of nice that yeah. she's replaced the eyes which are oppressive forces with uh with being free
1: yeah but at the same time there was another uh thing that we learn about freedom in this section was it was it's uh Aunt Lydia, I think it was, who tells them. Oh yeah, them... we should
0: talk more about the about Aunt Lydia, but, but. Uh... Yeah.
1: Yeah, but this whole idea of in the but in the before times you had freedom to, and now you have freedom from, right? Am I right. getting that right? They mm-hmm.
0: were talking. I think that was in the last section. They that they were talking about. She was talking about being catcalled.
1: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: and and Aunt Lydia talked about was was saying that it was that it wasn't all bad that there were you know they have to remember that now that it's freedom from. And I think that was right before right around the section where where we where those Asian tourists were visiting Gilead., yeah, 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 yeah that's right. Which was a great scene in and of itself. She was looking at the woman who had painted toenails and was remembering what it was like to paint her her nails. Yeah, and also like to have her legs exposed. and
1: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting now that uh, she um, remembers or, or has like fashioned herself to remember this lion being was bound but now I'm free Mm -hmm. Um, when I think we can all clearly agree that she's certainly not free Um, so let's let's talk about this creepy visit to the doctor
0: oh that was that was a great scene
1: yeah so, we are learning more and more about the function of the handmaids, um, and last week we had said that, you know, it, it seems, it definitely does seem sexual in nature, and pretty much this, this section we learn, their function is reproductive, mm-hmm. um, which was, you know, h- hinted at last time too, but anyway, um, so she's, she goes to this doctor office for her examination, they examine them for disease and also for pregnancy, and, um, I I loved this bit about uh like the symbolism on uh on the door and um there's so it's got a gold eye painted on it and eyes of course as we mentioned last time are symbolic of this um, surveillance basically um, someone's always watching uh, and then um, with a snake twined sword upright beneath it which of course we all know to uh, be a remnant of our current society. We know what that stands for, um, like a sort of handle. And she said, The snakes and the sword are bits of broken symbolism left over from the time before.
2: Oh, is this the sca- uh, the staff of Asclepius, but like, you know, bastardized into a sword? Yeah. I did not really pick up on that and cu- was kind of wondering what that passage was about. But it seems like... it. It must have become a sword very quickly. Maybe... I wonder if there's precedence for that in, like, military medical units to replace the staff with a sword, like in real life.
1: Oh, I have no idea.
2: Um, that seems unlikely, but I don't know. Maybe it has some basis in fact.
0: But hmm. other members of the medical field had turned violent. It's not just the symbolism. I don't know if you, you two noticed, but th- she mentions that the nurse is wearing a pistol,
2: Oh, that's yeah. fun. Yeah. One of the great things about this novel is that there's the constant threat of lethal violence, and not in any kind of crazy way, in just like, hey, you could just be shot by people. Um, and that is, it's a threat that is constantly referenced and sometimes just like alluded to, like the fact of being threatened is alluded to without any reference to a pistol, for instance. And it is almost never delivered upon. So far, there's only one or two instances where we have a, you know, thorough examination or an anecdote relating to that violence. As in when, um, what is it, was it a, a handmaid or a Martha that was shot by a inexperienced guard? It was a Martha, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was a Martha. And she was fumbling with her ID pass as she was trying to pass a checkpoint to go shopping. And the we know this because the I believe it was of Fred who overheard the Marthas talking about it. And they seem to have a little bit more liberty to to express disapproval about the system that they live in than the Handmaids. But they were they were saying that it was it was a it was a bad death.
1: Oh, but so, so yeah, so this doctor visit, this doctor visit was an excellent display of, uh, of, of power, um, and also of the ideology of... Of the Republic of Gilead because so the doctor um, there's a lot of weird things that happen in this doctor visit because normally uh, they're not they don't talk much they're not supposed to talk much to the handmaids but this this doctor does um, and she also um, says so there's usually a sheet that uh, basically covers the handmaid's face so they're just a torso that the doctor is examining but um, he ends up like lifting the sheet anyway but any and so he basically offers to have sex with her to help her um, get pregnant because he says that the commanders or I, I can't remember if he was saying her commander in particular or oh yeah, most of the commanders says um, they're sterile which is of course a forbidden word. Um, But also, the men are not the ones who are considered sterile if uh, the handmaids fail to conceive children. It's um, basically in the Republic of Gilead, she says, there are only women who are fruitful and women who are barren. That's the law.
2: Yeah, they've gone back to what my European history teacher in high school would describe for, like, Henry VIII and other European monarchs, which was whenever there was a problem, the the king would say, mm, it's not a problem with my junk, it must be a problem with your junk. Exactly. But,
0: but I thought it was interesting that they, I mean, it's like they're, it's not that that this is something that they don't know as a society and are kind of, like, willing this way out of ignorance it's something that they scientifically know that men can be sterile and impotent but they are choosing this uh, to be like as a dogma and it's kind of like it's their their alternative facts we might say
1: yes (laughs) Yes, exactly exactly because as you say they, they know factually that this is a thing that 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 happens and yet it's it's forbidden to to say it
2: Yep. So she's left in this impossible position where the doctor could be sort of trying to tempt her to expose her, or the doctor could be being spied upon himself, or maybe the doctor is really trying to help her out, and she, like, apart from the craziness that she's, like, thinking about the doctor's offer as perhaps, like, a great opportunity for her, um, she's, you know, there's not she's in this difficult situation because um it's a it's an incredible risk
1: right because of the system of suppression and surveillance that that they live in like there's there's really nothing that she can do in the same sense that there's like uh to say what was it someone asked how are you doing t- today and like uh to to not answer would be to 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 say that you were not doing well or whatever so you just answer yeah i'm fine
2: yes and well and in this section you know she's afraid either way because if she rejects the doctor's offer the doctor could falsify the results of her examination mm-hmm. and you know severely impact her life in that way so she's taking a risk either way. And uh, she, in this particular episode, she declines the doctor's offer, um, but sort of keeps things open for the possibility of accepting it in the future.
0: But once again, it's a situation that no matter what, he has all the power. Exactly. Right. And right after that, I thought it was really interesting that like, right after that exam, where her body is kind of just being poked and prodded, you go we go straight into the bath and she talks about how she doesn't want to like she's she's like immersing herself in the comfort of the bath but then she talks about how she doesn't want to look at her body not because she's disgusted or ashamed or because it's immodest but because she doesn't want to look at something that determines, you know, her social status so what did she say so completely
1: right because as she notes within the section that we read today too she she's a vessel um she is a uterus and that's 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 what her body is it's function even there's in in one of those the flashbacks that she has um and she mentions uh what was her friend's name? Oh, Myra. Yeah, yeah, yeah this Myra. is Myra.
2: This is Myra. Or you know, this story about Myra is the women as a, you know, vessel for childbirth taken to a like grotesque extreme, in which Lay punish Myra by like severely lacerating and injuring her feet, and the you know the idea being like you don't need your feet. Like or we can your hands. we can make yeah. mess up your hands and feet as much as we want because that's not the important part. You
0: you don't need to look pretty, so we're not gonna give you hand lotion or or creams or anything. That's else. right.
2: She st- she steals butter in this section and rubs it all over her because that's the only thing she has to to care for her skin. Um, Which is, like, it's one of those things that, like... She's, like, not even sure if it really works, and, like... It makes her face, like, smell like cheese. Yeah, (laughs) and she sort of complains about it, and it's something that she says, like, every handmaid knows how to do this because they all learn it surreptitiously at the Red Center. Um, And it's one of those things, like, when you read prison um, uh, accounts of, of people being imprisoned, you know, they do these ridiculous things because... No one knows any better, and they don't have anything better to use, and so like, you get like toilet wine, uh, in a prison, and they will throw bread in it because they're like, well, for wine you gotta have yeast, right? So you gotta throw some bread in, and it's like that's not how that works, but you know, <laughs> but you know, people go to these desperate measures, and when deprived of useful information and you know tools and freedom, they'll do things like rub butter on their face and put bread in toilet wine. Don't drink toilet wine, people. This is a PSA from me. <laughs> Hi, I'm Skye. A lot of people out there making toilet wine. I'm here to tell you it's a bad choice. Don't drink <laughs> toilet wine.
1: Dun-dun-dun. We're interlibrary loan, and we approve this message. Sh- she has... Several flashbacks during this section too of like she she remembers running, uh, pulling her daughter by the hand with her, um, so and and she remembers an episode in a like in a supermarket where her daughter is almost kidnapped by like a
2: crazy woman. Yeah, and she th- she thought it was just an isolated incident at the time.
1: Yeah, and so that um, line, I, I I wanted to ask what everyone's interpretation is of that.
0: Well, it seems like that's kind of hinting at the larger social problem at hand, because infertility is kind of a recurring theme here, and you get hints here and there that this society is having... Problems producing children, and that children are very valuable. Um, And this is like, this is an episode where the narrator herself encounters this, like, on a very real personal level, where her child is, like, snatched away. So, obviously, this was starting in the before times, before the, you know, the change of social order.
2: And it's also a way of repeating the horror of the narrator's child being taken from her. So, I mean, it sets up this, like, parallel with the ultimate flashback that we get of the child being taken from her. Now, it's interesting. The narrator seems to know that the child is now dead. Although, in the flashback, the child is not killed, but just taken from her. And then she seems to go back and forth on... It, it's very interesting. The narrator, at least in these sections, seems to sort of go back and forth as to whether or not her child and Luke are alive or maybe alive or are dead.
1: Well, she says that that is like a, me- a coping mechanism that they're told. Mm-hmm. She says it's, it's easier to imagine that she had died.
0: So she doesn't actually uh, know if her daughter is alive or dead. Oh,
2: that makes a lot more sense because I was like, "That's weird." Like in the flashback where the child is taken from her, the child isn't killed, and like, that's weird. Like, why would the child be dead necessarily? So I guess yeah, maybe the child is not.
1: Yeah, that's that's the idea. Is that she she doesn't know, but it's easier for her to think that right. that she's dead. So this and is like that she's not just still out there.
0: That's what it kind of brings in this idea of Orwellian th- thought control where even, you know, where the characters are even policing their own thoughts to cope and survive in this society.
1: Um, I wanted to talk about um, aunt Lydia reciting to them, blessed are the meek. And that it ends there. Uh, because what does, uh, how does that normally follow? It's blessed are the meek
2: for they shall inherit the earth.
1: Exactly. But, um, that idea given to these women would be dangerous. Would it not? Uh, because the idea that the handmaids would inherit the earth, um, is just just outrageous so yeah there it's 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 interesting that that particular line um which basically is serves to like blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth serves to 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 teach um to teach christians to um, you know, give to the poor tape and, and and care for the poor.
2: Well, and now that they've outlawed reading, um and outlawed reading uh and out you know, they can make up the what the Bible says. So I mean this is like this is crazy. Um like in you know, in the red center there's this scene where, you know, the ants will read or they won't. They'll uh, play a recording so that not the, even the ant would be guilty of the sin of reading. And it says, blessed be the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed be the meek. Blessed are the silent. And then a friend says, I know they made that up. I know it was wrong. And they left things out, too. But there was no way of checking.
0: Do we want to talk about the uh, the ritual that we are introduced to?
2: Yeah, the ceremony. Yeah, yeah, because
1: it's it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, it's, is it!
0: I had I couldn't remember all of the details of this ritual at first, since I when I started reading this again, and when all of the characters started or the, all the household members started coming in, I was thinking, wait, are they watching this the entire time, all the way through? Because I didn't remember them being present and thinking god that is really 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 weird <laughs> and
2: then after they're all done they turn to the camera and say the aristocrats
1: <laughs> uh, but no yeah it's only this first part of the ceremony right. wherein all members of the household are, are there and uh, so oddly there's like a, a, a little so um, Serena Joy lets them watch television uh, however of course it's television that's approved by
2: uh, it's uh cable TV news <laughs>
1: yeah yeah but it's also you know it's 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 propaganda and it's also a lot of uh, it, much much of it is religious in nature in this ritual the so the commander recites out of the Bible
0: that they can't read that's under lock and key right
1: and uh, but at the same time a Fred is silently reciting her new uh, mantra that she's found in her room.
0: Right. And this is where we learn her name too, which is kind of interesting. On page four is the first time that we learn what the narrator's name is, but she says, she starts it off by saying, My name isn't of Fred. I have another name, which nobody uses now because it's forbidden. So the first instance where we learn what the narrator's name is, she's saying, She's like denying that name.
2: Um, and, I mean, we figured that she probably had some other name, but she doesn't tell us what it is. It's like a secret that she's keeping even from us, the reader.
1: Right. Uh, and and to me, that's incredibly powerful because it's her identity. Um, and even if she can't reveal it, even to whatever uh, this you is that she may or may not be writing uh, to us... Um, she she doesn't even reveal reveal her real name to, to that she keeps it to herself.
0: Right, but yes, we were the the ceremony starts out with the with the commander reading off selections from the Bible that he only he has access to. Right, and then um,
1: Ophred continues her her silent prayer uh, as as this goes along, and then um, basically. Uh, the commander like c- c- she, she says the commander clears his throat this is what he does to let us know that in his opinion it's time we stopped praying
2: yeah there's I mean there's a lot of sort of funny bits in here
1: the way she describes it is just bizarre and like kind of funny but not funny you know
0: it's like back talk that she couldn't actually do in real life so she's like Going back and inserting the things that she she was thinking or would have said.
2: Yeah. And I think here she's, you know, highlighting the absurdity of the whole ceremony, which all of them participate in with the utmost seriousness, but is like this kind of unbelievable, like grotesque farce. And they all sort of know it, but they all have to play along anyway.
1: Uh, And then comes the second part, which is highly... More disturbing than the first, and this is and so graphic it's, and very graphic. Yeah, and graphic, but also incredibly impersonal, and um, uh, and and like, Fred describes it that way too. Um, so basically, what happens is, uh, the Serena Joy is there and she's fully clothed. Uh, Fred is there and she is partially clothed, um, just with her skirt hiked up, and uh, the commander is there,
0: fully clothed in his uniform
1: so she she basically lays like with her head on uh on serena joy's like pubic bone and they hold hands the whole time um to show that they're like one body one flesh um and then she uh fred used the uses the word she says um the commander is fucking And she says, I I do not say making love because this is not what he's doing. Copulating, too, would be inaccurate because it would imply two people and only one is involved. Nor does rape cover it. Nothing is going on here that I haven't signed up for. There wasn't a lot of choice, but there was some, and this is what I chose. And I I do think, though, I can test that.
2: (laughs) Right. I mean, multiple, like, there is a degree to which of Fred has internalized as a, you know, as if nothing else uh, by necessity, the sort of, like, non-consent based sex culture in this society.
0: Right, and I mean Mm -hmm. up until this point there, we get a lot of hints of how, like, how the ants enforced this blaming the victim, where there was was an episode where um, oh, yeah, that was that was intense. As right. Well. Where the where the one of the girls is talking about how she was gang raped at 14 and they they all chant that it's her fault. And, yeah, that, and they shame know, her. Right. And that um, what do they say that that such things don't happen to nice women. So, you know, she kind yeah. of owns this like she she owns this choice, even if it wasn't really a choice
1: yeah it that's that was incredibly disturbing so that's that here's that episode so um aunt helena is asking whose fault is was it and so they all chant her fault her fault her fault and aunt helena says who led them on she did she did she did and then why did god allow such a terrible thing to happen teach her a lesson teach her a lesson teach her a lesson oh it's just
2: and then in this section,
1: really disturbing,
2: yeah. W- in the ceremony uh, of Fred is being raped by the commander, um, but you know their the what rape means in this culture does not encompass what is happening. This is the ceremony. This is a different thing. Rape still exists in this world, but it means a very different thing, you know. Um, but that doesn't mean we, the readers, have to believe that, right? We, I think, you know, this scene we can very clearly identify what is going on here as a rape. And you know, the fact that it is sort of like sanctioned by the society does not change. And in some senses enhances how like absolutely horrific and crazy it is.
1: Oh, absolutely. Because even if a Fred chose to be a handmaid, um, even if she says she quote signed up for it, um, it's, it's institutionalized by the Republic of Gilead. Um, that that doesn't ch- like change the definition of what's happening.
0: Yeah, and she hints that this is not anything new in society because she talks. Of, she says she thinks in, about what Queen Victoria said to her daughter, which is just you know, close your eyes and think of England.
2: Um, yeah, I think actually that brings me to that. That that brings us to like a really important. Um, like thing that I've been picking up on throughout this novel, which is like how different is the world described in this novel really from, for instance, Victorian England, right? Like how different is the oppression that we see here from historical oppression of women and the poor and servants, etc., in historical times? Uh, in some senses, obviously, very different, right? This is a dystopian novel, and it's supposed to shock us in some ways. But in other ways, like I feel like, especially the scenes with the Marthas are straight out of a sort of upstairs downstairs type story that we're all very familiar with. Um, and I feel like um, the uh, you know we, so we had we have one of our great listeners, uh, Avon McMaster. Shout out, hey. Um, was talking to Katie and I on Twitter about our last episode, and she was saying, like, you know, it's interesting that you guys picked out that the before time is different than our own time. It always seemed to me that the point was that the before time could become the world of The Handmaid's Tale, or our time could become the world of The Handmaid's Tale with only a few differences. Um, And I think one thing that, that sort of highlighted for me was that for us... Um, especially all of us who were born around the time that this novel is published and grew up after the world it, it sort of describes, the real historical past is just as dystopian and horrifying as this imagined future.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's like, that's actually kind of a good segue to something I kept wanting to touch back on, which is that she talks about how, you know, if you live something and long enough, Anything can seem normal because you kind of live by by ignoring what like whatever is going on, whatever is happening in your your day to day life, that is your metric for for you know, gauging whether that is normal or not. And she says on a, like page fifty six, we lived as usual by ignoring. Ignoring isn't the same as ignorance. You have to work at it.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then she's also told, uh you know you, you'll become accustomed to to you'll become accustomed to this life
0: yeah
2: yep also their clothes are called habits habits are hard to break ha- <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. habits are hard to break in the desert there is no sign that says
2: thou shalt not eat stones
0: what is going to happen with her and nick
1: uh, yeah oh. So yeah, Nick, she, and, and so Fred is not entirely sure what to make of Nick. And, uh, at this point in the book, we probably shouldn't be either because she, she wonders, you know, oh, could he be an eye who's planted, uh, to test her? Um, because so at, at the end, at the very end of this section, um, she, has the urge to steal something she wants to steal something so she leaves her room at night and goes out and she's going to like steal a flower um and she runs into nick
0: and he says don't scream uh and she thinks like like she would actually scream in that situation and call attention to herself
1: right uh already doing something she shouldn't
0: right they kiss yeah
2: which yeah. is it, it's it's an exciting moment for a Fred, but it's also an extremely scary and risky one.
0: It's
1: scandalous because, of course, they're that they're they're forbidden to kiss. They're uh, forbidden
2: to talk to one another. To like talk you know, to one another, Nick yeah. has tried to talk to her before in the narrative, and she said like Why is he doing that? He's not supposed to be doing that. Like I'm gonna pretend he didn't do that because I don't want to get in trouble.
0: He kind of played footsie with her in the ceremony and kept pushing his foot up against the back of her heel. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. Um. I think that of Fred's um, sort of like constant urge to steal things and to get away with things is also sort of these links back to people who are imprisoned uh, or people who are servants in the sort of like class systems uh, of you know of uh, you know like a like a Victorian novel or something like that, right? Like when you're kept in these really oppressive conditions and you have so little power, um, like even meaningless theft becomes a way of exerting control and power over your situation. Um, So, you know, so the, the urge to steal something is like control. And then Nick comes in, in this last section and is, you know, sort of takes control away from Fred in this moment.
0: Well, and that's, it's kind of like, she talks about that a little bit, that the Marthas do the same thing with the like, overcooking or undercooking the chicken, right? So that they have their own ways of expressing their distaste and exerting control over the other people in the the household. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Which is, like, not too different than, like, descriptions of, you know, characters in, like, Charles Dickens novels and things like that. You know, like, these are not new patterns of behavior related to this dystopia, but are instead, like, Margaret Atwood examining... In like, power inequalities more generally.
1: A particular quote or section or anything that was your favorite this week?
2: Uh, we went over mine, which was um, a fart in church. And and that whole passage.
1: Um. That one was pretty golden. Um, I think for me, so uh, Fred is talking about this ritual of using the butter as like a a skin moisturizer. And she says... Um, as long as we do this, butter our skin and keep it soft, we can believe that we will someday get out, that we will be touched again in love or desire. We have ceremonies of our own private ones. And, um, yeah, I, I, that section just was, like, similar to her, uh, new, mantra that she's discovered from the baseboard in the corner of her room it's a little very small act of resistance that she can do in the same way that she like she can repeat her former name to herself even though she doesn't reveal it
0: one of my favorite sections was actually leading up to the ceremony um where she's describing the sitting room in so much just gorgeous detail and it's something that, you know, it kind of builds up the anticipation about, we don't know what this weird ceremony is going to be like, but she takes her time to kind of like describe as she's sitting there waiting and looking at the, the various trinkets and the furniture and, um, and it's a really stark contrast between her own bare, simple room and kind of like the ornate, um, you know, decor speaks. In this, like, in this living room, um, and there was one passage in particular that she said that money has trickled through this room for years and years, as if through an underground cavern, crustening and harding like s- stalactites into these forms, and so even in this, in this new, like, you know, society that's supposed to be better, it's still. Like money and and as a form of power is still very much you know present.
2: Next week, listeners, if you're reading along with us, we will be reading chapter uh, section seven night, section eight birthday. Uh, So this will take us to page one forty in the paperback version. This is just sections seven night. And Section 8, birthday
1: uh, Thank you for listening I'm Katie, I'm Sky. And I'm Lauren,
2: thanks for listening Actually I bet North Dakota is very beautiful
1: I'm sure it is, I've never been Shout out been. to
2: our readers and listeners who live in North Dakota Call in and tell us What North Dakota is like There's not really a way for you to call in But you can email us um, Our email address is
1: Hello, isn't it
2: I think it is. I think it's hello at. All right, I'll drop this in later. We're <laughs> real bad. We're real bad. Not bad like good, but bad like real bad. Um, <laughs> we're the worst at podcasting. Inter inter inter
0: library loan. Please rate us high 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 on iTunes. Find us online at ILLBook.club. On Twitter, we are at ILLBookCast. Thank you to our generous, smart, beautiful also Patreon donors. We couldn't do it without you. Okay okay okay, back to robot sleep until next week.